0: From. From the studios of WMYU Live, this is In Depth on Sports. Today is November 23rd, 2021. I am your host, Ian Colalucci, and I'm so excited to be back with you here. This is our fourth episode of the show. I apologize, we were not on WMYU last week due to an unavoidable and an, uh, academic conflict I had to deal with. I apologize for that, but I have some exciting news to announce. We are now on Spotify, just search In Depth. Sports with Ian Colucci and you will find it. Uh, this episode that we are doing today, uh, that will go up within the next few hours. So I'll be very excited to discuss that. Uh, and uh, joining us today on the show, we have Mr. Zach Carson joining us today. He uh, is an analyst for Gen Z Hoops. He is a, he works in the G League with the Lakeland Magic and he's going to be discussing with us today the role of analytics in basketball. Certainly both a controversial topic and an interesting one going forward because With the role of analytics, you know, in baseball, you know, it's more prevalent, but I think a lot of people ignore the factors that it has sort of in the basketball industry, and so he's going to talk to us about his take on it, sort of how teams are using it, as well as his own experiences in the G League and how it's applying to the development of players. So we're going to get to him in the second half of our program, but of course, we have a lot of sports to talk about this week because, you know, as we've reached November now, uh, we have obviously... Uh, MLB Awards just wrapped up. We had uh, Shohei Otani obviously taking the American League MVP uh, in the NL. We had obviously Bryce Harper. Uh, we'll get to some MLB Awards stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the actions of LeBron and Isaiah Stewart, a very exciting, uh, well, not necessarily exciting, but definitely, you know, LeBron handed a one game suspension, Stewart two games. There's questions whether or not it was intentional or not, so we're going to get into that a little bit. And of course, we had obviously a great week in the NFL a topsy-turvy week with sort of the biggest teams in the league uh really struggling uh I mean you had Buffalo go down 41 to 15 against the Colts uh and then of course you had uh the biggest upset I would say by far was Houston taking down the top seed in the AFC the Tennessee Titans 22 to 13 uh, even with a pretty solid performance by Ryan Tannehill with 323 yards, still remarkable to see how Tyrod freaking Taylor came back, came up to the table and really showcased a, not necessarily a vintage performance, but basically to the best of his ability, that's basically what he can show out there for Houston. So now obviously Houston two and eight, but you know, the top teams in the league sort of coming down a little bit off their pedestal and it really, Makes these last five weeks of the NFL season or six weeks going to be very, very exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing the divisional matchups once we get towards Week 16, Week 17. You know, with how close it is getting in some of these divisions. I know if you listened to our program a couple weeks ago or in the last week, you uh, I pointed out that I really thought that a lot of the teams at the top of their respective divisions were going to hold out and stay there. I still think that's the case in the majority of cases. I still think the Cowboys. boys will probably win the nfc east but you know you had philly now at five and six uh green bay still holding strong tampa bay still holding strong but you know and arizona still holding strong i still think it's going to remain that way but you know the north baltimore not necessarily holding it down there and um you also had Indianapolis gain a game on Tennessee. And, you know, Pittsburgh uh, coming off the win against the uh, against the Chargers. So uh, we're going to have to see how that turns out. Uh, I'm sorry. Actually, I, my apologies. Uh, L.A. coming off the win against Pittsburgh. So we're going to get into scores. We're going to talk about some stuff. Uh, but this is sort of an NBA-centered So we're going to start in the NBA today. Uh, we're going to talk about LeBron uh, because – I really feel like this story... Well, let's lace it. Most media outlets have a predisposition towards LeBron. Uh, you see how consistently they will point to stories that involve him. And there's no reason why it shouldn't. If you saw many of the fan angles that people took of this altercation, it was pretty brutal out there. And you don't necessarily see guys like LeBron really play a l- large role in that kind of thing. I mean, he. it was sort of... uh if you noticed what they quoted it as, it was an escalation of an on-court altercation by a, by repeatedly and aggressively aggressively pursuing LeBron by Detroit Pistons center Isaiah Stewart. Now Stewart, not necessarily well known, he's playing on a weaker organization, developing player, pretty solid. Um, he uh, seven points a game, uh, seven rebounds a game. Not necessarily you know a big time star, but he was picked by Toronto back in 2020. But a young guy. Not necessarily well-known, and he's actually, fun fact, if you want to feel old, he was born on May 22nd, 2001. Uh, I am, uh, he is just two months older than I am, so that's... Pretty remarkable to say the least. The guys who were born after the millennial, uh, the millennium, were are now in the NBA. Pretty remarkable, but that's besides the point. So LeBron is going to forfeit two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars in salary, and he is not going to be playing when they come here to New York against the Knicks. And if you're a Nick fan and you come to see LeBron, I really feel for you. I mean, this is you know it's your chance to see him. It's a big ticket game. I'm sure the Garden will still be packed regardless. But I'm sure there are definitely fans out there who are upset that they're not even going to get to. See See him, uh, and you know when you see you know after what happened. um If you look at sort of, I think the biggest the the big photo that everyone took away was the blood coming on the on the uh, on one of the sides of Isaiah Stewart's face. Uh, you could see that it clearly uh, really took him out above his eye. Uh, it looked like it was pretty serious, maybe stitches, all sorts of stuff. But you know now we have to wonder was this intentional and if you look at the video of what happened it doesn't seem like it was and i and i know lebron apologized for it which makes me think it could be but in all honesty this is a free throw okay the people have to go for a rebound it's not like this is you know a a tea party it's you're gonna move your elbow to to box out your opponent It, it doesn't make sense why you wouldn't do that and i know he apologized and maybe that implies guilt but you know this is sort of what happens and you saw that they assessed stewart two technical fouls lebron got a flagrant two and they both were obviously ejected because of the altercation that happened afterwards but the initial action itself it's hard to tell um i know if let's say you had no context in the situation and you looked at it I would say it looks pretty unintentional. But, you know, there's a certain standard that guys like LeBron have, and I think people are, well, there are a lot of people who don't like him, but I feel like a lot of people in this sense would sort of see him as sort of getting a different standard compared to all other players because of the market value he has. Number one most followed player on Instagram. He's all everywhere. I would say probably the most recognizable American athlete around the world. And that sort of thing plays a role for the NBA when assessing damages, fines. They're going to look – it's hard to tell whether or not they would look at him in the same way that they look at, you know, someone like um, – I'm trying to think of a medi- a mediocre player like Kyle Kuzma or – no, he's not necessarily mediocre, but definitely below LeBron James's caliber. And maybe would you see a different suspension for someone like him? or Would you see a larger fine? It's hard to – or a smaller fine – it's hard to say, but it's his. It's LeBron's first suspension, and we're gonna see. They're gonna meet again uh, on next uh, Sunday in LA. We're gonna have to see how that plays role well because they obviously will be back by that time. Uh, but uh, in terms of you know New York with the Lakers coming into town, I mean. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're going to the game. You you missed out on seeing arguably the greatest player of all time. Uh, there's a lot of arguments for that. But we're, we're not going to get into that right now. But certainly a lot of things to think about there. But in terms of the NBA picture itself, since the last time we talked about it, I know we didn't really get a chance to discuss it uh, as much recently. But, you know, you have teams like Brooklyn and Chicago who have come out of the gate strong uh Chicago has been strong the entire way through they're 12 and 6 sitting in the two seed in the east um but you have a team like Brooklyn who struggled out of the gate a little bit and sort of the Kyrie question plagued them repeatedly the media all they wanted to do was talk about sort of because of his vaccination status whether or not you know it would impact how the Nets did this season and I know Kevin Durant is no longer the favorite for the MVP. I think Steph with the Warriors 15-2 and two start. We're going to get to that in a moment. But that sort of hot start that the Warriors and Phoenix, for that matter, have gotten off to sort of pushed durant out of the public eye i still think he's got a good shot to win the mvp but right now it's steph i mean right now it's clearly steph and uh but you have to you can't underappreciate the role that uh kevin durant has played uh i especially you know in the game against the Cavs uh last night they only won by a couple points but it was durant with 27 points 10 for 10 at the free throw line definitely a fantastic performance from him and you know you also had former net jared allen uh Solid with fifteen boards. Uh, definitely played a role for Cleveland, who has not been that bad this season. I know, obviously, they're sitting at um, they're sitting at five hundred right now, but you have a roster that is. Well, underrated in a sense just because of the young talent. But Jared Allen has always been a solid player. Uh, when, he, when he was in Brooklyn, I mean, before Brooklyn made all these changes, when they were up and coming, he was one of the centerpieces. I mean, he played every day. He was a consistent performer, uh, always grabbing boards, a great defensive player. And now that he's on a roster with a lot of young guys, I mean, it really exaggerates his value. I know Colin Sexton, uh, sort of the centerpiece of the young um, the young Cavs, up-and-coming players. I know he's obviously out for the season. So uh, it's it's interesting to see how, despite being without him, there has been more success than you'd expect. And I know Cleveland is sort of still reeling, uh, just obviously after LeBron left, obviously that was a while back, but just in sort of how... They didn't have. They didn't get Cade Cunningham. They didn't have the number one pick. Uh, and you have uh, Evan Mobley, who has been fantastic, sort of in the in the rookie uh, in the rookie circuit, arguably the best rookie in the NBA out of UNC. With he's got 15 boards, eight rebounds, two and a half assists per game. Uh, I know he's out right now, and he's going to be out for two to four weeks. But this is a surprisingly young roster with a lot of potential, and I really think they'll be interesting to watch. Could we see them maybe squeaking out an eight seed? I don't know. Uh, With all the injuries, it's certainly going to be difficult for them. But, uh, you know, it's a team that if you look at, I mean, think about who leads the team in points. It's usually a guy like Ricky Rubio or a guy like um, Kevin Love sometimes. But uh, uh, Rubio definitely mostly and Darius Garland. But um, definitely a team to watch. I'm looking forward to watching how Cleveland develops. But uh, in terms of other teams just sort of in the standings, uh, I think... We got to talk about the West. I mean, it's Golden State and Phoenix who have come out of the gate hot. And I think what we're going to actually... Well, you'll see when we talk to Zach Carson later in the show, he's going to be talking about sort of the role of these teams and how the ways that they are able to score points compared to others. It's interesting because the strategy of taking threes as opposed to taking twos how threes have sort of taken over the nba has sort of been the warriors mantra ever since they became you know the warriors i mean the, after the 73 win season they became sort of the dynasty of the nba and now you have a less potent off a less potent roster and you have sort of Steph taking over and it speaks to how teams have remodeled themselves around this. I mean, uh, well, Zach is going to talk about how you know, his team is the Milwaukee Bucks, and he's going to be talking about how the Bucks, even with sort of their best player not being a three-point threat, how they utilized him to to expose uh open men on the perimeter and sort of he could pass out and how defenders draw in but we're going to talk about that a little later but in terms of the standings in the nba i mean you have as i said brooklyn and chicago taking over i mean they are in the lead right now and in the west you have la and phoenix and i said utah was sort of lost in the um lost in the fog with this they're 11 and 6 right now and i know the sun's on a 13 game winning streak it's hard to ignore them but a team like utah will make the playoffs certainly because of their you know with donovan mitchell and rudy gobert i mean it's a Dominant guard-center combination that is arguably one of the best in the NBA. And I think with the role, they have very strong role players in Jordan Clarkson, Rudy Gay. Uh, I know they're usually out as uh, starters, but they can, they're always producing for points uh, consistently in the top. uh, They usually are in the top four or three, uh, despite having less minutes than Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell. So I hope people don't lose sight of the success that teams like Utah are, is having and teams like you know Miami also in the east starting out hot also the same record at 11 and six, uh, even with underperforming players. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But shifting our focus now from the NBA, we're moving to the NFL now and boy, what a week it was for first place teams. Uh, I mean, think about think about on one hand how Buffalo, you could argue in week one, maybe not Kansas maybe excluding Kansas City. You could argue they're the best team in the AFC. I mean, it's with Josh Allen arguably being a top two quarterback in the AFC. I mean, he's been... It was great last year. Um, uh, But again pretty solid performance but the defense just looked lost out there jonathan taylor jonathan taylor looked like barry sanders this week i mean he had five he had five total touchdowns 185 yards averaging six yards a carry against one of the if not one of the best i would say a good defense in buffalo i wouldn't call them one of the best defenses in buffalo but a good defense i wouldn't expect him to give up 41 points It, it doesn't it speaks to the illogic of that sort of that's what I'm saying here. 41 points is not sort of what Buffalo has had throughout their throughout the season. Uh, they've been consistent in keeping teams under um, under the 20 25 point threshold. I know they've had sort of you know they had the Jets and the Dolphins, which aren't necessarily threats. But I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable to see that a team with such high expectations is now questioning themselves with New England coming out. Hot looking like, you know, the Bill Belichick era, still continuing on. I mean, you know, they shut out, uh, if we're going back to Buffalo, they shut out Miami 35 to nothing. They shut out Houston 40 to nothing. They shut out Miami, uh, they brought uh, 26 to 11 in October against Miami, 17 points against the Jets, allowing just nine to the Jaguars. I mean, again, think about this. I'm also, these are weaker teams, but I think Indianapolis is on the sort of the middle of the pack where you could say they're going to allow 21 points, 20, 24, 17, whatever you want to call it. It's just so surprising to me. And I'm concerned just in sort of how they're going to look going forward. I know their schedule is favorable. They should have a good advantage going ahead. I mean, they have to deal with New England, obviously, in December. uh, But you have... uh, uh, you also have games against the Jets still. You have games against... Well, you do have a game against New Orleans uh, on Thursday night. I think that's going to be really crucial. Uh, but you also uh, do have to the deal with Tampa. So, I wouldn't say it's that easy. But it puts Buffalo in a difficult position. I mean, if they... I think with New England's success going on this five-game winning streak, I think you have to wonder. if they If they lose two more games, I think New England has a legitimate shot. I mean, you have... I think the real proving point for New England will be the game on December 19th against the Colts or this Sunday, for that matter, against Tennessee. I mean, you have a team going into coming off a, lo- a brutal loss, motivated to win. And I, I think it's going to be a factor of motivation mo- versus momentum. And, you know, the momentum that New England has against sort of the... Uh, I know uh, you've had to deal with the Derrick Henry loss, obviously, but still... They're clear favorites in the AFC South. This is a, I would say, the weakest division in the NFL. I mean, you could argue the NFC East just because I I would say the NFC East probably in in the AFC. We'll say in the AFC, they're the weakest division in the AFC. And, you know, if you're having concerns that Indianapolis might catch you because they're, you know, now they're six and five. They're on a three-game winning streak. You have to wonder... Is this cause for concern both for Buffalo and Tennessee? And I still don't think it is. I still think Tennessee will win the South. I'm a little more tentative now with Buffalo, but you know what? If... Josh Allen can sort of rebound and sort of find the way that he's. If he can continue to be consistent, and the defense shows that they can be consistent against good teams, not necessarily those bottom feeders in the AFC East with Miami and uh, Miami and the Jets, and then you know sort of having to deal with you know other teams like uh, like Jacksonville or Houston. If they can prove that they can shut down a good offense. Uh, or find that sort of consistency in their defense, there's no reason why Buffalo shouldn't win the AFCs. But there are definitely grave concerns on that end. So that's sort of where it is in terms of, you know, the upsets. But in terms of just the regular slate, I mean, you had uh, a great game in Minnesota with the Packers and the Vikings. And, you know, when I I, I was watching this one, and when I saw sort of how you had, a, a, you know, Aaron Rodgers in a consistent sort of, Aaron Rodgers-esque day. I mean, 385, four TDs. I mean, this is, that's what we come to expect. And, you know, if they lose to, well, let's face it, Minnesota is a better home team. Um, They are more consistent that way. But, you know, when you have, I think Kirk Cousins has learned to utilize his weapons extremely effectively. Uh, And that could be partially attributed to the coaching of Mike Zimmer. Uh, But, you know, you have Dalvin Cook, who is consistent in sort of getting four yards of carry putting together usually a touchdown in a game or it's either a a 75 100 yards or a touchdown i'm consistent performer, and of course justin jefferson i would say emerging as a well probably the most besides tyreek hill one of the best skill receivers in the nfl and i think he is perfectly complemented by adam thielen in that aspect of sort of a slot guy and then you have uh tyler conklin as a good weapon uh sort of on the uh, on the tight end side so big win for Minnesota I think the uh, the North Green Bay sort of realizing that okay you know this is it's a divisional game I always think divisional games are a lot less predictable you know, you have games where, you know, it's on paper, it looks like it's going to be clear who's going to win it. But I always feel like divisional games are, you know, questionable and sort of how they favor them, I think. But when you look at a line, a betting line on a uh, on a divisional game, I always take it with a grain of salt because of how these teams play each other more often. They have a better sense of who's going up against each other. And I think that's also kind of the case in college football where, you know, let's look at something like the SEC, where, you know, if you remember... Remember a couple weeks ago, Alabama lost to Texas A&M. Those are teams where they see each other pretty much every year. I mean, they know the skill sets. They know Saban's play stylings. And they managed to pull out a 41-38 win. Now, granted, this is sort of a side issue. Bama's defense has struggled this year. It's an offensive-centered team. But I always feel like interconference matchups tend to be closer and uh, don't necessarily, on paper, reflect what's going to happen in the game. And as... You know, I said last week about the Giants as we're going to move into that as we sort of finish up here with the NFL. With the loss to Tampa Bay, you know, uh, as if you remember a couple weeks ago, I was talking about the Giants and the Bears as sort of the threats. I see out of the lower end of the spectrum, I thought it was possible that they could emerge from the rubble as sort of these teams that find their footing and get back to possibly 500, maybe catch a playoff spot. But now, you know, the Bears blew their opportunity. Uh, Losing to a Lamar Jackson-less Baltimore team was both brutal and sort of i think matt naggy is out the door i think um you know, with he's had his time. He's got his new quarterback. Who you know, i I think Justin Fields needs some more time. I'm not willing to judge him just yet. But I really feel as though you have a situation in Chicago where it looks like it's not looking good for a playoff spot. And I also think for the Giants, I think if they had both won, I. You know what? I. I was. I'm going to admit here, I was wrong on sort of the the close game with Brady. I really did think it was going to be a closer game than this, thirty to ten. Giants defense looked lost. I mean, think about how. The Giants' only touchdown was scored by a left tackle. I mean, that just goes to show how weak the Giants' offense has become with sort of a squandering Saquon who hasn't found his footing yet. Daniel Jones still concerns on the offensive side of the ball. I do like the Giants' defense a lot, but I think with a team like Brady's uh, Buccaneers, I mean, it's tough to contain such... Potent offensive weapons uh, Mike Evans, uh, Chris Godwin I mean that's, that's tough it's, it's no Bashing on the Giants, I don't really want to bash on the Giants Because they're my team, but I do Think as though both of these teams I would have been still Optimistic if the Giants had Kept it close with Tampa Bay, but the fact that Chicago blew it against Baltimore Makes me, you know, I really think That, that it, it's looking Very unlikely, but You know what? We're gonna have to see, and you know, with the NFL, it's—I still think it's a top-heavy league this year. I think the sort of the everyone's like, "Oh, it's it's such—it's gonna come down to the wire." I think in the wild card aspect, it will, but I still think those top four seeds are pretty set. You may see the different; there might be a different order. Uh, Maybe New England will squeak it out against Buffalo. I I think that's probably the closest one, but I, I don't know. I just don't feel like any. Uh, many of the divisions have that much potential for a change. Uh, maybe the AFC North, maybe uh, maybe the um, a- AFC East, but we're going to have to see. But as we sort of uh, close in on the NFL here, we're going to move towards baseball now. And, you know, the awards season has just wrapped up. And, you know, if you had listened, uh, if you listened last week, we made some predictions. And we talked about how... Uh, Otani and Harper were going to be the MVPs and it was the case I think you know writers looked at Juan Soto they saw the walk totals and I think they looked at that sort of offensive side of the ball as impressive as I thought it was as we remember we discussed last week Juan Soto is young this man was born in 99 I mean in 98 and he's 23 and he's producing offensive stats so sort of his his ability to get on base is on par to Barry Bonds in sort of the I wouldn't I wouldn't say obviously they're obviously similar in their skill sets I think Think Bonds was a better player, obviously overall, but I think their ability to get on base, especially at Soto at this age, is still quite remarkable. And I didn't—I thought, you know, I personally might have given it to Soto. I thought the writers were going to take Harper, and that's what they did. And of course, Otani. I thought—I really thought one writer wouldn't like Otani, but clearly they were thinking unanimous, and that was the case. And uh, you know, Guerrero getting almost unanimous in sort of the second place spots, uh, and you know. The the AL race was sort of wrapped up. We knew one two that was what was it was going to be. But I thought what was interesting when I saw the vote totals in the NL, you had obviously Harper Soto one two, but then and Tatis was three. They were the finalists. But Brandon Crawford, Brandon Crawford got four first place votes. That's more than Fernando Tatis. And you know I think Tatis probably had the better season. Uh, I think it's close um I think for what I'll I'll say it like this for what Tatis did in the limited amount of time that he was on the field he was only on the field 130 games compared to what Crawford did in 160 I think you know if you prorate that out it's probably a I would say I would even give the edge to Tatis if you prorate uh but you know for what they did on the field one Brandon Crawford and the Giants offense I mean wow that's all i can say i mean but in terms of the way that crawford was able to have such a resurgent season being 34 still compiling a war of 6.1 that's top that's top 10 in the national league top five in the national league uh managing 24 homers which he has never done that's a career high in home runs at 34 which you know what every time i anytime you hear career high in home runs when you're over the age of 30, I always am skeptical, you know, with all the steroid thing. I don't think that's the case with Crawford, but, you know, that always kind of, you know, perks my ear up a little bit, but, You know, his defense, just as good as it was five years ago, still managed that gold glove. OPS plus of 141. That is remarkable for an older shortstop who sort of comes from the grain of like a a Barry Larkin type of player. Larkin was a great hitter uh, and a uh, good defensive player, but uh, offensively, I mean, they... Power-wise, they produced pretty much the same. Crawford consistently 14, 15 home runs. Larkin, same sort of deal, 14, 15 home runs. But on the defensive side of the ball, Brandon Crawford, you know, bar none, probably one of the best defensive shortstops. And when you see totals like this, I mean, this is an offensive breakout season. And doing it at 34 for a Giants team that wasn't expected to go anywhere, I am both impressed with Farhan Zahidi's ability to compile and organize. Well, I think Zahidi's genius sort of lied in his ability to pick up pitchers. I think Gosman and Logan Webb and Di Lafani, excuse me, and uh, Alex Wood. Fantastic seasons for, you know, players who were sort of, they're not going to garner these big contracts, but they will be consistent. And Kevin Gosman. Proved to be a When he was on uh, I think in that first half of the season Before he got hurt He was I would say There was a point where you could argue He was probably the third Or second best pitcher In the National League I know He was definitely behind DeGrom But There was a point where He was Rolling 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 and these were, mind you, these were not starts against easy teams. I mean, these are these are games against the Dodgers. and you know, the Dodgers obviously came up short in their divisional quest. but I mean, if you look at Gosman's game logs, I mean it was he was consistent. He was a consistent pitcher uh, for, I would say the first time in his career. Uh, and I think a lot of the metrics on him, pointed favorably i think a lot of guys for the giants they pointed favorably to breakout seasons especially in logan webb's case um but you know coming off awards brandon crawford four first place votes very impressive to say the least from a 34 year old shortstop sue. i don't think anyone in their right mind would have thought that he would have you know that he would have ever received the top five first four first place votes and a top five finish so definitely impressive on that end but uh we're gonna move towards the uh Cy Young and Rookie of the Year um first in terms of Rookie of the Year you know I was uh I discussed this with somebody before um I really liked Mountcastle's performance this year uh I know he didn't get a lot of recognition but I thought he deserved more than sort of barely getting a few third place votes um he didn't really um they didn't really give him a lot of recognition i know i think i do think a rosal deserved it um but um i really would have thought with his offensive output in an orioles lineup where he was so valuable throughout the season i mean without him you could argue that they would have had even less wins which is pretty hard to do i mean when you're when you're when you're compared to teams like the 2003 detroit tigers uh if you don't know they won 43 games in a season that's the lowest total in major league history and you know when you're when you're getting close to that number it's hard to find good talent now Castle was certainly along those lines. He was good talent. Um, and I was surprised that the writers didn't recognize him and his talents more. But Rosalina and Jonathan India, definitely good picks for the award. And then, you know, when we move towards uh, Cy Young, and then we'll talk for about manager of the year for a second. Um, you had Cy Young uh, with Cy Young Awards. And, you know, in the American League, Robbie Ray, you know, taking it with his numbers, it makes sense. I mean, it was... A weaker year in the American League, you know. If you go through, uh, if you go through like last ten years, Cy Young Award winners, um, I personally, you know, if you look at the names, Verlander, Scherzer, um, it's it's sort of the same cast of characters, um. David Price Uh, But now There are always Those years Where you sort of Have a guy that comes up And like wow Sort of wows you And they They're there And then they never Do it again I mean that sort of Was Rick Porcello's case um, And maybe In Robbie Ray's case We're going to have to see It's hard to judge But he again Similar sort of Older in his career, an older veteran, strikeout guy, really put it together for one season, had, you know, signs of success early on, but then sort of picked it up at a later point in their career. Very similar case with Rick Porcello. Um, but, you know, if you look at AL Cy Young Awards in the past, I mean, maybe you could put Blake Snell in that category, possibly. I mean, it's it's unfortunate to say that because, I, you know, Blake Snell was um, such a success for Tampa Bay. Uh, but you know what? It, it's... It's interesting to think about it in sort of a historical context, and in, in the National League, you had Corbin Burns take it, both of whom I uh, personally, I this is this is who I would have picked. But I would I was surprised that the writers did not sort of go on Max Scherzer for traditional numbers. I would say if you're a traditionalist writer, Scherzer stands out just because you know the win loss total, fifteen and four, ERA two point four six, whip led the, led the National League in whip point eight six four. Sabermetric numbers don't necessarily favor Scherzer as well, and personally, I wouldn't have given him my vote i would have given it to burns and that's what happened it turned out that he got i keep in mind burns and wheeler tied in first place votes but uh in terms of you know the context of shares i would have thought that the writers would have liked him more the ped, i feel like pedigree really set is more powerful for you know an award like the cy young and you know a guy like bueller also similar again playing for a good team great win-loss record low era traditionally those are the kinds of guys that win it, but I'm I'm happy to see that writers are taking more things into account. I think you know I think the first instance where we saw this was uh, about ten years ago with Felix Hernandez when he won the Cy Young Award at I believe his records was 13 and 12, and you know traditionalists were up in arms like Oh, he doesn't have enough wins. How? Why are we giving it to him? It, he's not deserving of it. He was. He was clearly the best pitcher in the American League that year and. I don't understand how you could possibly think that because he played for a weaker organization, you're going to discredit him. Seattle at that point was at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, you could argue that he was their only bright spot. Who who was the best offensive player for that team? They were. um I don't know if this was the year that he won it. I know the year he threw the perfect game, if you remember, was 2012, and that wasn't necessarily his best season. His his Cy Young season back in 2010. 13-12, uh, and 12, ERA of 2.27. But if you look at the Mariners that year, this, this this is a listless organization. They won 60 games. I mean, uh, you had Ichiro still kind of putting it together. I mean, this is later on in his career. He's 36 at this point. But, you know, who led your team at home runs? Russell Brannion led your team at home runs. I mean, uh, I personally, I got to think, if you're listening out there, you probably don't know Russell Brannion. And, you know, if you remember... Back about 10, 15 years ago, he was a pretty good pinch hitter role, power guy, uh, uh, actually was a big Yankee killer back in the day. Uh, But you know what? It speaks to, I think that was sort of the point where the writers realized we cannot discredit a guy just because he doesn't have enough wins. And I'm very happy that writers are moving this direction because guys like Burns and Wheeler, who didn't necessarily, well, Burns did play for a good team, but his decisions were unfavorable. I think it's good to know that writers are thinking this way and you know in my context I'm very happy to see that and I do think the writers were good this year I I personally you know the only one that I really didn't agree with was the platinum glove in the National League with Arenado but that was a fan decision and you know and if you see fans I think a good example to point to would be MLB Network's top 10 I don't know if you know this but um, this is a show that they do where they rank the top 10 players and they always have a fan vote and they always you know they see who the fan's And it's always these guys In big market clubs And you know you have guys like Yadier Molina who, you know, are still very good catchers, but they rank them as such great, like a top five catcher in, the, in Major League Baseball, which they aren't. So uh, it's interesting to see how the fans are still willing to do that. But I think the writers are moving in that direction. But we have a guest to get to, and he's, uh, we're going to talk to Zach Carson in just a moment. He's going to be discussing basketball analytics. And since we're just discussing baseball analytics, he actually is going to make some comparisons to how they are valued in each sport. But uh, we're going to get to that in a moment. We will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and this week uh, we have a personal friend of mine joining the show uh, from my hometown of Greenwich, Connecticut. He is an analyst at Gen Z Hoops as well as a game day operation in game day operations for the Lakeland Magic. Joining us right now, Mr. Zach Carson. Zach, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing great, Ian. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. And, you know, we're about a quarter of the way through the NBA season. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, You know, I want you to, you know, some teams have come out of the gate hot. You look at Golden State. You look at Phoenix. But I want to hear your thoughts on the standings right now. What do you – any predictions, thoughts? What do you think is going on right now?
1: Uh, Well, I think that from top to bottom, what you see right now in in the – Conference standings, both conferences. It's it's not attainable, mm-hmm. uh, and I it will it'll look completely different in uh, at the end of the regular season. I, I
0: you know what I, I can't say I don't I, I agree with you there. I mean uh, it's basketball is kind of fickle. I can understand why you might think that. Uh, you know you personally. You know you've your team is the Bucks. Uh, you're coming off well. You're coming off a championship. You kind of be happy with that, obviously. But you know I want you, I want to hear your thought. I want to hear your thoughts p- first on. The Bucks' outlook for the season, as well as you know, are expectations too high? Uh, what, what's the atmosphere like as a you know as a Bucks fan coming off a title?
1: Well, there's obviously a little bit of concern right now, just with the Bucks being nine and eight, being mm-hmm. the current eighth seed. Um, but you got to look at it this way: the Bucks' starting five has played zero total games together. Okay. The Bucks' key three, Giannis, Chris, and Drew, have played three games together. Mm. We we lost Drew for a few games. Brooke has been out since opening night. Chris Middleton was diagnosed with COVID. Uh, Dante, our fifth starter, has been out the entire year. He got injured in the Miami series. Grayson Allen, though, has taken his spot as our two guard and has looked phenomenal. He's the most improved candidate. He has uh, double digit points in every game this season. He's averaging twenty three points in his last four games. Huh. He's looked phenomenal. But with the Bucks being the eighth seed. There's there's literally nothing to worry about. We have not had our starting five. We are we've had three of our um, three of our starters out the majority of the season, so uh, we're not worried there. But people are going to start to overreact in the national media side of things, who don't actually watch the Bucks on a day to day basis. So I f-
0: you know in I f- the media yeah you'll I, hear that. I you know what I, I feel that that's the case for a lot of teams. I feel like and certainly with the case of the Bucks, who are more of a small market, but. The media is always quick to judge on these teams that have started off slow. I mean, you've seen with uh, with the Lakers. I mean, they had started off, uh, they're 9-9 nine and nine right now. And you have Brooklyn, who started off slow, who sort of managed to bring things up a little bit. But, you know, people are always quick to jump on the bandwagons and flush teams that were supposed to be good but aren't necessarily doing that. But I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the statistical side of things. And just coming from your perspective, both talking analytics and basketball, I want you to talk a little bit about the role. I mean, do you think fans are more willing to accept the role of analytics? I know in baseball, it's a little bit different. You know, it's sort of more mainstream. But I think in basketball, it holds just as much value. What what are your thoughts on sort of the fan perception as well as sort of your individual take?
1: Well, you'll have your your OG guys like Shaq, uh, Charles Barkley, who are very against analytics and the new form of basketball they're just like the they're the OGs. They've played in the in the era where there was bully ball, you want to get to the paint, and analytics is such a new form of basketball analysis that it's you're gonna have those guys that are very close minded to it. Mm-hmm. But I'll give you a good example of that. Let's say the average player let's let, let's say like we'll use an example of an NBA player. They shoot fifty percent from two. Okay. If they take a hundred shots, mm-hmm. shooting fifty percent from two, they're going to score a hundred points. Okay. Yeah. Now of course. Yeah. They shoot. So you'd say like a good basketball player shoots fifty percent from two. Okay. okay. I'll,
0: I'll agree. With, I'll agree with that. I think. So I don't know if that's necessarily the average, but keep going. Yes.
1: Well, no, it's not the average. It's that's what that's like the standard as a good. Shooter, okay, or okay, like a good field goal percentage. Okay, like in baseball, if you hit three hundred, you're a good hitter. Right. If you're a three point shooter, forty percent is good. Okay. So, a good two point shooter shoots fifty percent. That's a hundred points per hundred shots. Okay. A good three point shooter mm-hmm. makes forty percent of their shots. Yes. That would be a hundred and twenty points per hundred shots.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: People don't like the three, but the reason that the three is the new shot in basketball. Thanks a lot to Steph Curry. You're averaging 20 more points per 100 possessions, right? And a typical basketball game has 100 possessions. So, mm-hmm. if you if you're a good shooter from two, you're scoring 100 points. If you're a good shooter from three, you're scoring 120, and 120 is more than 100, right? So that's the analytical side of basketball mm-hmm. that people are not very accustomed to, but. It's what has to happen. Right. That's the reason the Warriors have the new dynasty. Right. Popovich's Spurs haven't really been good since 2011. Because he's an old-school basketball coach. Right. All right. That's not the... It's not on Shaq and Pop. But it's just the new form of basketball. Right. I, I you know what it's it's interesting that
0: you said that you put it that way. It's amazing how, you know, the way that it's presented, the information sort of 120 versus 100, despite taking the same amount of shots, it's amazing how it's simply a numbers game and it's it'll be interesting to see if guys like Shaq adapt to that sort of way of thinking, but I want to sort of adapt that, what you just said there, to uh, our local team here in New York, the Knicks. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, you have a reasonably strong start. And I want to point to a guy like R.J. Barrett, who is really started out hot from deep. You know, people said he was changing. He had one game uh, earlier in the season with his career high he had 35, looked great, sort of has tailed off a little bit. And with an old school uh, coach like Tom Thibodeau. Do you see the Knicks adapting that sort of strategy in their game? Or, you know, if there are struggles like what we've seen with Barrett recently, do you think they're going to be more willing to change back to what they were last
1: year, which was still a first-round team? So, Tibbs, I will half agree with you on calling him an old-school coach. He has an old-school mentality where he's okay throwing his starters out there for 44 minutes a game. Uh-huh. But he has a great coaching staff with him that is very that has adapted well to the modern nba Mm. notice how julius randall revived his career in new york not because he just became this amazing player but because he added different elements to his game like perimeter shooting right and mid-range yes i think there's a lot i think there's a lot of players like randall you you could say
0: have sort of adapted that game um I want to, uh, you know, we just talked about the Knicks, obviously. Are there teams that you look at and you see that same sort of idea? You see a team that's sort of on the cusp, but because of, you know, changing their strategy. Do you see any emerging teams as a result of this factor?
1: I think your best example right now is Chicago. Okay. Just because you have, a, like, I'd say two of their three main guys and Lonzo and DeMar DeRozan are not... Good three point shooters. Right. So it was a great three point shooter in college, and then who knows what happened to him in the NBA. Mm -hmm. He's shooting 44% from three this year. True. It's true. Like, that's a career high. Demarta Rosen, I I don't know the exact number, but he's like a team's percent three Hmm. point shooter. And this year, he's just completely changed, it and he's in the mid thirties, right? And I know he's in. Uh,
0: I know he's in the top five in scoring this year, and that's due in large part to this uh, to this change. I mean, you're, if you're jumping from twenty six percent to thirty six percent, I mean, you have to say that that's going to work. And you know, uh, you pointed out the Bulls. Uh, do you see a team like maybe Washington or Miami or you know, so, uh, actually Utah? I think is a good example. Do you think those kinds Great of teams? Uh, I I think. Those kinds of teams, do you think that they have staying power in in their conferences? I know, you know, with the Wizards, it's you know that's been off of this hot start, but we don't know if they're going to stay in there. And you know, with the Jazz, the West is so competitive. Is there a place for them out there in you know as one of the top seeds, as a contender in the deep rounds of the playoffs?
1: Utah is tough. I think they're a finals. I, yes, I do think Utah's a finals competitor. Miami. I don't know. Mm. Like they're they're so interesting to me because they are they got that old school bully ball mm-hmm. dog pound mentality. They're just not a shooting team. Mm. Well, it's you know Jimmy Butler, Kyle Lowry. I mean, it's Jimmy. Jimmy is not a three point shooter. Jimmy shoots twenty four percent. Bam does not shoot. Um, Tyler Heroes having a great start. Duncan Robinson's having a slightly disappointing start. Um, that's that's really what I mean by. What's happening now is not going to be sustained throughout the entire season. Mm-hmm. Duncan's going to pick it up. Tyler's going to lower it a bit. Kyle Lowry's going to find some consistency. B.J. Tucker is going to uh, become a master in his role, which is not a scorer. It's really a defensive leader and making an impact that's not shown in the stat sheet. I say, But I think Chicago will also take it a step down. They are going to be better than people think. Washington's the same way. I think both Chicago and Washington are going to fall between the three and six seeds in the East. Uh, I think Utah will stay in the top four. Mm-hmm. I don't think they need to make any midseason acquisitions. Right. I think Rudy Gay is going to need to step up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they're, they're just going to be a fun team to watch this year. All right, so
0: definitely will be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, I want to turn now to a little bit of more of the developmental side. And I want to talk about your role a little bit. So, you work in the G League, which I don't know if our listeners know a ton about, but, you know, sticking with the theme of analytics, what have you seen just in as in operations, being in operations, what have you seen that teams in the G League, or specifically the Lakeland Magic, what do you see them doing in terms of developing their players or sort of how they train in sort of how coaches are adapting these skills to, you know, younger players or players that are coming out of college or even forego college for that matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what Ignite is doing is great where we have guys just foregoing their college eligibility mm-hmm. and going straight to the G League to get professional experience and money. Like, right. these guys, a lot of these guys are have made it as far as they have with the motivation of, like, providing for their families growing Mm -hmm. up in the not not the best neighborhoods not the best situations and the fact that instead of getting yeah free education is great it's absolutely a privilege but actually having a five to six figure income to their families Mm -hmm. as 17 18 year olds it's important that's i mean that's it's not even comparable to getting one year of college experience right but so like moving moving off from julie ignite because everybody can uh everybody wants to talk about ignite i think what's happening with career revivals like mm-hmm. brandon knight oh yes um uh, lance stevenson yeah alfonso mckinney he's a young guy but like he's, he's with capitanis the new team mm-hmm. but um it's g-league is becoming what the nba intended it on being okay. for its entirety mm-hmm. g-league it, it's It's like growing before our eyes and people need to start paying more attention to it, like Gary Payton said.
0: Is the talent level improving, do you think? Is it is it clear like night and day, like if someone went to a Westchester Knicks game ten years ago compared to the league now, would there be a noticeable difference, do you think?
1: It wouldn't even be a competition. Mm. You got guys I mean, Lance Stevenson. Was, what did he average, like 30-something points? It's, I believe it's, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% on the official number, but I believe it is over 25. Yeah, like he just completely dominates. Brandon Knight was a, he was an all-star. Like these guys are choosing to play in the G instead of going overseas. Like a good example from from Lakeland, Hassani Gravit, he, he, he played at South Carolina a few years ago. Then he came in his rookie year to play for the Lakeland Magic. Played, fan, like played phenomenally. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he went overseas because I'm pretty sure he had a bigger contract. He just had a kid. Um, and now he signed a training camp deal or he signed a summer league deal with the Orlando Magic. Then training camp deal to Orlando. Same with John Teske. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's back with Lakeland this year. And like he, he averages like 16 a game, 40% from three. Super athletic. Like, he would just... He he's an he's an NBA player, mm-hmm. and he's just the starting point guard for Lakeland. And I mean, yeah, we're like defending champs, but for in the G League. But he's just guys like him; they just have so much talent. And I was telling, uh, so we have Admiral Schofield, who's a pretty well-known name. Okay. Um, I was tell, I was talking to him last week. I told him, I'm going to enjoy every second watching you down here because you won't be here for long. Mm-hmm. Just like it's because these guys are so talented, right? And our NBA, like, I think it's like sixty percent. Of G League players have played have logged a minute of NBA action, if I'm not mistaken. That's like, that sounds right. TV. Yeah. Yeah, they're NBA players. They're just like fighting for a second chance.
0: And you know what? Do you think? Oh, well, we're going to wrap it up in a little bit here. But do you think NBA teams are more willing to notice these players? Uh, are they going to be you know willing to extend contract offers, ten day deals? Are they are they more
1: willing oh, now because of this talent? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, the number of call ups per year. I think it jumped like 7% from like 11 to 18%. Right. But I'd say one in five guys will get a call up from the team that they play for, uh, like of the affiliate they play for. Mm -hmm. Like three Lakeland Magic guys will get call ups. Like, uh, I was talking to, uh, Ignis Brzekis. He, the, uh, former Michigan Wolverine played for the Knicks for a year. Okay. So he's, he's, uh, he's Orlando's two way guy. Okay. So on Tuesday night, Tuesday, like, two weeks ago, he had a game with Lakeland. Okay. Or he was with us. Then on Wednesday night, I'm at home watching the Orlando Magic game, and I see him check in against the Brooklyn Mets on Wednesday night. And then on Thursday night, we have a game with Lakeland, and he's there again. So I was talking to him. I was like, you're playing three games in three days? And he was like, yeah, man, it's a grind. Like, it's, it's just these guys are NBA players just going back and forth. It, Same I, with the Bucks. They I, they just uh, they assigned three of their guys to the hurt. Now mm-hmm. they're getting called back up. Right. It, it, I I hope.
0: I know you realize it because you see it on a daily basis. But I hope people realize sort of the extent to which these players grind in the way that they have to. You know, fight for a spot in the NBA, and because the talent level is getting better, it's going to become more competitive too. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Well uh zach well before we wrap things up here we're gonna ask you uh two final questions here first sort of in your sort of your take on the role in which the three-pointer has taken over as you discussed earlier one, do you think a team will, the NBA remain this way? Do you think that three-pointer will continue to dominate and teams will sort of, this will be sort of how t- uh, titles are determined, sort of this, you know, ability to run with a three-point offense? Uh, but, and secondly, do you think that the NBA is more willing than any other sport to adapt analytics or are they sort of in the middle or give us your thoughts on sort of their position
1: in the big four of American sports in analytics. Um, Well, to answer your first question, I think that the way that the three-pointer has taken over today's league, the two-pointer will not be abolished. I think the shot that will start to Fade away is the mid range, mm-hmm. just because mathematically it have a it's higher fit. percentage right. chance of scoring at the basket than in, in the middle, the where you get the same basket. amount of points. Right? It's worth the same. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, I think that versatility is important for both. Uh, for like both the twos and threes, like the reason the Bucks were so successful mm-hmm. is because they have one guy that is so dominant right. scoring twos that he draws a wall, and, and he can pass, and he, can, and he can pass out. Years. Right. Yes. Exactly. And with a, with a spaced floor, you have all five spots of the peri- or four of the five spots of the perimeter wide open. Right. And so you need the three point shooting to go with the two, but they go hand in hand. Right. If you have a team of pure shooters, it's if you have an off-shooting night, you're just going to get blown out. Right. Uh, I think and that was the buck yeah. two years ago. Yes, yes. Um, and to answer your second question, yeah. I think that from a business perspective, I think the way the NBA is run, it will be the absolute dominant of the four major American sports. Football is still number one, but the NBA is just the most well-run league, and it's not close. Uh, regarding the analytics in uh, player performance. Mm-hmm. I think that and the NBA is such a numbers game, but baseball is just a little bit more. Okay, um, and so obviously the Billy Bean era started in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. So the wave of the new way to play baseball has kind of started its process earlier than basketball. Right. I think basketball started maybe five years ago with the the dynasty of the Warriors, sharing sure. with absolutely play. Um, but i do think that in 4 to 5 years uh, basketball will be the most analytically driven sport in the four major sports
0: wow that's a it's it's bold to hear you say that but i can't say i'm surprised given how the game has
1: changed so much over the last 10 years well and yes yes, yes before, go ahead before you wrap up real quick yeah. i want to clarify What I mean by, or where I think the big change is going to be is not necessarily in player performance, but in players' contracts. Uh So there's this platform called, I I don't want to mispronounce it, but it's like Profit. I
0: I assume I assume it is a database or website where it sort of determines sort of what players are worth
1: and sort of how teams can, you know, deviate this worth. Is that accurate? It's it's very close. It's it determines the player's current worth based on their actual contract. Okay. 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 And so you got guys like Duncan Robinson just signed a 90 million dollar deal for being strictly a shooter. I don't even know if he can dunk any 6'8". Uh, his value to the Miami Heat makes him worth $18 million a year. I see. It's it's interesting when you
0: say it like that because when I see her value and $18 million and playing more to his value, I think of baseball and sort of the whole <laughs> idea of like you know finding market value players.
1: But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Duncan, you can finish. Yeah, go ahead. That's going to be the reason that the NBA becomes so analytically driven because there's a hard gap in the NBA. Right, there's that's a right. Cap and a luxury tax. Baseball, you got a rich owner, you got a rich team. That's a better. Hundred
0: percent accurate
1: there. So you're going to really have to value players based off of more than the number uh, in their paycheck. I see, and it, it'll change the form of contracts. Wow.
0: Well, Zach, you've certainly given us and the viewers a lot to think about. We certainly appreciate your time, and we'll leave it with this. Uh, NBA Finals, off the top of your head right now, who are you thinking? East, West, who are you taking?
1: Um, I think the East will be determined off of a vaccination. Mm -hmm. I think the West will—I see the Warriors in the conference finals. I don't see them making the finals. Mm -hmm. I see Phoenix making it—I see Phoenix repeating the West— and I think it's tough in the East. I do think, coming from a Bucs fan, I do think that... Uh that Brooklyn takes us this year if Kyrie's back. Mm -hmm. If Kyrie's not back, I don't think the Bucs have anybody in their way. Miami's the second closest. Also, I do want to say that Indiana will end up in the playoffs. I do think they will. Wow.
0: And you know what? Actually, with Indiana there, I completely agree with you there. I know, you know, 13th, but 7 and 11, definitely a lot of room for improvement there. Well, Zach, thank you so much for the time. Uh, We really appreciate your input, and we hope that we continue to wish you success on your endeavors. We appreciate your time, Zach. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ian. That's going to do it for this week in In Depth on Sports. I'm your host, Ian Colucci. Uh, Next week, uh, we're going to be talking, obviously, next week at the NFL season. We're wrapping up towards the end of December. And, of course, we want to wish all you listeners out there a very happy Thanksgiving as we head closer to the end of the year, 2022, right around the corner. Thanks so much for joining us. We will see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.